This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. It is a weirdly cold but weirdly beautiful day here in our fair metropolis of Atlanta, Georgia. Let's give it up to our one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. They call me Ben. Uh, Noel, we're we're hanging out. Uh, We are... Fans, I think all three of us are uh, cinephiles, and we're also fans of stage works. I I recently saw some stage plays in uh in as the COVID lifted, yeah, or as it backed off for a second. What'd you go see? A little Our Town, a little uh, <laughs> HMS Pennefall, perhaps the South Pacific. Are you a musical guy? I love musicals, man. I love a I good musical. Have you, have you seen this? Have you seen the Steven Spielberg West Side Story, Ben? I have. I have. We talked about this um, at some point, didn't we? I, I really enjoyed it. It's his first musical he's ever done, and he nailed it. I've just been screaming about it. I just loved it. I watched it on a plane, and I cried into my airplane chicken tikka masala. It was like that kind of good cry where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, the spectacle, the, the the lights, the footlights, the, the the dancing, and the camera moving through the ceiling and all that. Um, we're not really talking about musicals today. We are talking about the theatrical arts. Yes, theater. Uh, wherever you want to put the R and the E. There is a difference. We'll save that. You can You can surprise yourself with that. Yeah, so 
It's weird because now when people think of theater, they think of it as something separate from the world of film, right? Most of the famous actors you are likely to know today are film or television. But back in the day, especially when film was coming into its own, right? And and in the years and decades, and well, let's be honest, centuries before that, the celebrity actors were stage actors, you know, and we don't have a lot of video of them, of course, and there are relatively few photographs, especially when you go back to the time before the photograph was a widespread technology, but you'll see woodcuts or paintings of these people who were very much like the Morgan Freemans, the Brad Pitts, the Angelina Jolies of their day. That's right. The Morgan Mindys, you know, the, the Laverne and Shirley's. The Golden Girls. A few the Jared Leto's. Yeah, that's a few, right. few Jared Leto's, unfortunately. Yeah. The Mr. and Mrs. Smiths of their time. Remember that movie? It was a big deal at the time, and I don't remember a thing about it. Mm-hmm. And they were spies, and they were very good looking. And that's all I remember. But, uh, you know, it's funny. We actually did an episode about a pair of rival Shakespearean actors, William McCready and Edward, Edwin Forrest, who had these competing performances of Macbeth uh, and there they had such like rival like super fandoms that it ended like one of the performances ended in like a riot in the streets of Manhattan remember that one Ben it's been a mm-hmm. while but uh, yeah. th- this is sort of in the same vein as that one because today we're talking about like the father of all of that kind of hubbub you know the father of all of that like the actor as mega star is a guy named Ira Aldridge, who was born in New York in 1807. And he uh, made quite the little name for the big name for himself uh, back in the mid 19th century. He had many cultural awards and honors bestowed on him. And as of today, he is just one of 33 people who've been honored with a bronze plaque on a chair. That's a big deal. Get your own plaque on it. It's not like a bench, this is on a chair. Not in a park, but at the Shakespeare Memorial Theater in Stratford-upon-Avon. So, Ben, what's the big deal with Aldridge? Why was he so special, and what makes him noteworthy outside of just being a crackerjack actor? Yeah, one, a phenomenal actor by all accounts. Two, uh, he's an American who is impressing Europeans. And three, perhaps most importantly for this uh, story, he was upending social norms and taboos of the day because, you see— Our protagonist today, Ira Aldridge, was black, and he was living at the time, like we said, he was born in Manhattan, 1807. He was living at the time in this sort of gray area between being a free person of color and being uh, an enslaved person. Historians like John Hope Franklin like to describe him as belonging to the world of the quasi-free, and we learned about this, or at least I, I first learned this phrase through an excellent article in The New Yorker by Alex Ross called Othello's Daughter, and it's all about the legacy of Ira Aldridge. So he wasn't from these uh, super elite ancestries. Uh, Slavery was at the time, thankfully, being gradually abolished in New York, but the population people of color in that area were still beset at all turns by Jim Crow kind of laws. You know, voting rights were restricted. That was one of the biggest deals. His father, Daniel Aldridge, was a street vendor and was a preacher in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. 
And we don't know much about his mom other than her name, Lorana. Uh, he did have a pretty good education. He learned at the African Free School in his early years. This was a network of schools set up by anti-slavery advocates and abolitionist movements. And Daniel Aldridge, Aldridge Sr., he really wanted his kid to follow him into the ministry. He wanted him to be a religious figure. But eventually, Ira got a taste of the theater. He probably saw it at Manhattan's now defunct Park Theater. And that's, that's where he got the hook. And that's where he found his direction in life. And it's a good thing he found it, too, as we'll see. Yeah, for sure. Um, he uh, participated in performances of Richard Brinsley Sheridan's adaptation of Pizarro, which uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with. And by most accounts from historians of the man, his next acting performance was in a Shakespearean play. It was uh, at the African Grove Theater, which was the only theater that black actors were allowed to perform at. It was uh, between Bleecker Street and Prince Street there in Lower Manhattan. And it was actually one of the very earliest attempts to create a kind of cultural community uh, around theater in segregated New York. It was all black cast, crew, uh, and largely because of the community kind of aspect of it, the audience was uh, made up of free and slave, middle class and working class alike, uh, according to a lovely quote from a... Uh, Aldrich historian in this excellent Mental Floss article by Natasha Frost, the 19th century African-American actor who conquered Europe. Spoiler alert. You already kind of hinted at that. He's definitely impressing those theater snobs in Europe, or he will be very soon. So back to Shakespeare. He makes his uh, Shakespearean debut in the African Grove Theater's production of Romeo and Juliet. So he's already starting to build a name for himself, at least within his community there in New York and the African-American theater community, which was admittedly, you know, a little niche. It just had this one uh, performance space. But that was soon to change after uh, some rocky beginnings, let's just say. Yeah, because the discrimination still was ever-present and ubiquitous. Shortly after the Grove opened, city officials kind of made up a reason to close it. They said they were getting a lot of noise complaints. So the project was relocated to Bleecker Street, but this move took the theater away from its core audience there in central Manhattan and put it in competition, just geographically, with larger, a bit fancier theaters. And it was struggling to compete with those. And these theaters primarily had white audiences. And the theater infrastructures there resented this new kid on the block. They also had a smaller attendance themselves because, you know, they moved away from where their audience is. So the theater ran into trouble and these problems were exacerbated because not a week would pass without the police or local racist residents or city officials coming by just to jam them up and hassle them. We don't know exactly what happened, but there may have been some criminal behavior on the part of these, these haters, basically. It, at least one source claims the theater mysteriously burned to the ground in 1826. No records of it exist officially after 1823. And this is where Aldridge said, you know, I wonder if people are going to take me seriously as an actor in this country. If I, as an African-American, can make a go of this in this nation. 
And he said, no, he decided his only path forward as a serious, determined and inspiring actor of color was to emigrate. And that's why when he was only 17 in 1824, he took a job on a ship headed to England and he planned to never return. Yeah. Sort of self-banishment. Or, you know, it's an adventure, of course, in trying to make his way in a place where he thought would be a little more hospitable. But it does have, have the um, the ring of exile to it in, in a weird way. So he went to England. Uh, the British Empire had already abolished slavery. It was a much more welcoming situation for him. Because, after all, in the U.S., the slave trade was still flourishing in parts of the U.S. I mean, it had been abolished in New York, but we know, you know, how it went elsewhere, uh, right right here where we currently sit, in fact, unfortunately. But free African-Americans and their descendants, either way, were not eligible for citizenship. Runaway slaves were to be returned to their owners, caught. There was a whole bounty hunter kind of situation around that. Really, really nasty stuff. Very inhospitable. But in England, you know, well, I'm sure there was plenty of racism, as there is everywhere and continues to be. It doesn't just go away the moment you change a law. Uh, it was more hospitable for him and his uh, career prospects. So to cover the cost of his travel, he um, got a job as a steward on the very ship that took him to Britain. That's sort of like paying for your dinner by, like, washing the dishes mm-hmm. at the restaurant. Very clever. This guy seemed to be pretty quick on his feet and and a very, like, um, resourceful guy. So on the trip, he became friends with a British actor uh, who was also happened to be a producer of theater, a guy named James Wallach. They met a few months earlier, and then, as chance would have it, they ran into each other again on this boat, and Wallach offered Aldridge a job as well to, to be his like valet, you know, uh, mm-hmm. not really an acting job, it's a little condescending, but you know, it's a job nonetheless. And so they get to Liverpool. Aldridge quits the job on the ship. It's obviously only intended to like pay him enough money to get there. I mean, they're like, why did I feel betrayed? I thought we thought, thought we had a, a grand new lifelong employee in you, Ira Aldridge, you cad. Um, and then he decided to, you know, join the employee of this uh, actor producer fellow. So uh, through him, he starts to meet some pretty cool contacts, even if Wallach didn't, you know, give him a useful gig in the industry right away. By being around him, you kind of you, you rub elbows with some of the right people in the world of theater there in a new uh, a new city and a new country for him. Yeah, I would say that was the main win for him. That was the primary method of payment for him. It wasn't about the money. It was about the access. And he also matriculated into the University of Glasgow, where he quickly distinguished himself. Over 18 months, he won a lot of like recognition and even a gold medal for excellence in Latin composition, which the three of us have not won for the record. So uh, after, after his time in Glasgow, he finds work, an acting gig at the Old Vic, which uh, was known back then as London's Royal Coburg Theatre. He plays the role of Oronoko in the Revolt of Suriname in 1825. The London press hated him. They were total pills about it. They predicted he would never work as an in actor. In this town again? He would, they predicted <laughs> he would never work as an actor at all again. And then they also said, and you know what further? We don't think a black man should be on stage at all. This started to change 
in May of 1825, later the same year, when he hits London as the first actor ever in Britain to play Othello and also actually be black. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off the that's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating up to eight passengers. Yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Right. That's the troubling history of that character. Right. Uh, yeah, the... Everyone previously playing that would have been in in some kind of horrible garish blackface uh, makeup. So uh, it's it's a very interesting character too. I mean, that is a very politically rife and controversial play from Shakespeare. Does it hold up, or or is it sort of a little bit? Uh, does it not age well? Othello has. It, it is a tragedy. It's a tragic story, and. There's a lot of questions now. There's a lot of discourse now about whether Othello is a racist play or whether it's a play about racism. 
if that makes sense. Uh, yes. And there's there's a yes. lot of great discourse. I'm having a hard time recommending some of the many articles written about this, but if you if you check on if you just search your browser choice for that question, is Othello a racist play or a play about racism? You will see a lot of differing opinions here. And of course, fellow ridiculous historians, we welcome yours as well. So it's not it's not such a cut and dried answer, right? Like that's that's sort of what it comes down to. Right. It's it, it can be complex because you have to think of the context of the time, the context of the modern reader. What did Shakespeare think? Oh boy. Mm-hmm. You know, what it reminds me of is uh, the way Wagner is sort of treated. So Wagner being like a known virulent anti-Semite, you know, who was totally a Nazi sympathizer, if not like the official composer of the Nazi party, more or less. But nowadays, his, his music is viewed as very, very important and culturally important and like in terms of like the history and trajectory of music. And there are Jewish musicians and conductors that will reform the work of Wagner, knowing all of these things, but also knowing the impact that it had. And I, I saw a piece where a couple of those folks were sort of explaining, well, what better way to give the old FU to Wagner than have a bunch of Jewish dudes playing his music? <laughs> so. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it also goes back to the question of to whom does a work of art belong, the artist or the audience? But yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting, constructive way to look at it. The people of London, the literati, the tastemakers, they were also starting, the the tide was starting to turn in Aldridge's favor. Uh, The critics who had lambasted him earlier weren't really sure how to take this guy because he was, as they described him, a gentleman of color, and he was also lately arrived from America. But when they saw him in Othello, dude, they loved it. They said, His death was certainly one of the finest physical representations of bodily anguish we ever witnessed. And still, this is all, by the way, this is all happening while the guy is only 17 years old. Shout out to Paul Anthony Jones. Uh, Yeah, on Mental Floss, he wrote Ira Aldridge, the black Shakespearean actor who... We're going to wait on that title for a second because I don't want to spoil it too much. But his star was ascending. Right. He was moving into the big leagues. It wasn't very long after this. He was getting top billing in different plays in different venues. He became the very first African-American actor to establish himself outside of the United States. But there's some there's a lot of baggage, as you can imagine, that comes with this. He was sometimes called the African tragedian. And uh, that story has a problematic etymology. We'll get to it in a second. But uh, even though he was becoming that era's equivalent of a movie star, he did not have an easy ride of it. You know what I mean? This was the odds were still very much stacked against him. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, despite uh, the comparatively progressive uh, approach to slavery, again, that was like the worst end all be all extreme of racism. Still plenty of old money types going to the theater that were quite racist and did not like the look of a person of color treading the boards, as it were, right, on on uh, the stages, these these like hallowed stages, hallowed halls, from like Covent Garden, for example, uh, which is where he performed soon after um, his Othello debut and a newspaper called The Figaro was absolutely just lambasted him and basically kind of made it almost like a personal mission of the editor to tear him down. I just have to say, he's a black guy playing 
Othello. What is the problem? Like what like they're they're saying, I don't know, it's a bit too far. It's scandalous. It's it's so we weird. cling to the old ways. Yeah. I, what? Anyway, no, this all really happened, folks. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So they essentially launch a smear campaign against him, you know, largely relying on racism uh, and uh, otherness and just kind of treating him like some sort of foreign invader. Uh, they essentially wanted him to have to give up his, his theater aspirations and become, uh, you know, a workman uh, in a lowly position suited to his station, right? Something like a footman or a street sweeper, quote, the level for which his color appears to have rendered him peculiarly qualified. <laughs> yeah. And uh, good news. Folks, don't worry. Story's not over yet. They weren't successful, but uh, it did kind of drive him away from the London stage. He was having a tough time getting work after the establishment said, this is way too far for us. And if you look at the traditional story, you will see some people later adding some nuance onto this. So the Basic story, the long story short version, is that racism, including national media in the day, wrote these really racist reviews. But then there are other historians who are arguing it may be less clear cut because there was a flu outbreak that was driving people away from theaters at the time. And then it's possible the powerful supporters of slavery had bribed reviewers to write this opprobrious stuff. So the the real answer is kind of lost to history, but we know that Aldridge did not take this as the end of his career. And uh, the stage is lucky that he refused to accept defeat. Instead, he took Othello and another play called The Padlock on a tour of all the provincial theaters in Britain. He said, look, theater's for the people, and if London's not going to have me, there are still people who live somewhere else. And this was a huge hit. It was a national tour. He got all these new fans. Max, if we get people cheering. Just make them sound oddly British. Perfect. Ooh, I'm sorry, I mean... <laughs> Tally-ho. Tally-ho, ballyhoo, ballywick. Who, who governor? And, and he became... He actually became the manager of the Coventry Theatre in 1828. So that's another first for this guy. Now he's not just the first black American actor to break through. He's the first black manager of a British theatre. Right. And he starts really making a name for himself also as an activist, uh, doing speaking engagements on the evils of slavery and all of that. And he becomes something of a leader uh, in the abolitionist community there in the UK. And he really starts to kind of get a lot of support swelling around him. He takes his tour to Ireland uh, and, he, and he arrives in Dublin. And shout out to our buddy, uh, listener, Andy Buck uh, from Ireland. He could tell us a lot about a really, really cool dude um, uh, in a band called Sky Trumpets that he uh, named after uh, a phenomenon that we've discussed on Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. I think he's more of a Stuff They Don't Want You To Know listener. But anyway, 
thinking of Ireland, thinking of my buddy Andy, our buddy Andy from County Cork. Uh, but he takes his uh, tour to Dublin and becomes a smash hit. Surprisingly, they, mm-hmm. they, they, take, they take him much more uh, e- easily than the Brits, which I would not have necessarily expected. No shade on the Irish. It's because I think there was a social aspect to it too, Noel, because yeah, that's they, right. they liked when he talked to them, uh, you know, not in character, but just as himself. And it talked about how terribly he had been treated by the British in London. And oh, we can relate to that. Yeah, because because <laughs> yeah. of the tense nature there between Ireland and, and uh, Britain, obviously he found an, a choir that he could preach to because you have to wonder how many people who supported him in those audiences were thinking, I love Othello and I love the padlock. And how many of them were thinking, yeah, screw the British. That guy gets it. But either way, either way, he was treated really well. He he made a number of lifelong friends in Ireland. He's touring Britain and Ireland repeatedly by the 1830s. He's got a one man show that he has made on his own. It's got these great dramatic monologues. It's kind of like, um, it's almost like a mixtape or a montage. Shakespearean recitals, songs, but then also in the midst of this, he puts in real life tales from his own biography or autobiography at this point, as well as lectures on the importance of abolitionism on both sides of the pond. Right. And I mean, he has plenty of firsthand accounts, even though he was never a slave himself. He certainly experienced the prejudice and horrible kind of remnants of slavery and the attitude towards uh, black people in the United States and in England. Also, not to mention that at the time, what he's doing is almost akin to like what you think of as like a variety show, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, Ben, it is a one man show, uh, but he's doing all these different things, throwing all these different bits. And it really is like educational and also entertaining and much more of like high cultural kind of, you know, uh, fair with the Shakespeare and the songs and all that. Um, and it really serves to kind of lambast and lampoon and serve as a meaningful kind of counter to these awful minstrel shows that were still super huge at the time. Mm-hmm. Theater is protest. And I, I love this because. Oh, this is so good. Yeah. So good. Uh, it's, it's an excellent way to, to just encapsulate the power of theater, which sometimes sounds pretentious, but it is a real thing. He started using whiteface. Blackface was very popular and normalized at this time. And so he would put on whiteface and he would say, Hey, I'm, I'm, a good actor. I'm not just a good black man who is an actor. I am a good actor. So he would play Shylock, Richard III, Macbeth, King Lear, all the hits from Shakespeare. And then there was this guy, a minstrel show, a white actor doing blackface named Thomas Rice. He came to England with his menstrual routine and Aldridge took it up a notch. He took one of Rice's own skits, minstrel show skits, and he wove it into his own show and he parodied the parody, which meant that he cut, like he hamstrung anything Rice was trying to do and showed himself to be an unparalleled performer. It's like, uh, for an example of the power of theater, I still can't believe we didn't get in trouble for this. During a lot of the anti-choice movements here in Georgia, me and uh, some of my colleagues started holding protest but we just switched the word abortion for promotion. And we actually managed to interview the governor at the time and uh, had a conversation with him until he caught on. It was on tape about whether or not he thought women should have a right to a promotion. 
or whether it should be up to men in the government. We didn't that get arrested. glass ceilings there for a reason, <laughs> ladies. Okay, we, we didn't get arrested, but theater can be powerful, and this is something that galvanizes his crowd. But maybe we talk a little more about his role as an activist because we're pointing that out, and I think that becomes like increasingly important to him, even more so as time goes on. Yeah, and as you can tell, he's already making a name for himself essentially as an activist, and he's becoming this kind of community leader in the abolitionist movement. He really starts to use his, you know, fame from the theater to fight against slavery, even from all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. It's incredibly impressive. So Shakespeare plays typically end with what is known as a a jig. Uh, in a classic performance of a Shakespeare play. I think most of the ones that I've seen, Ben, I don't know if you've ever been to like Stratford-upon-Avon or been to like a Shakespeare in the Park Festival. Mm -hmm. I've usually seen more modernized version of it, so I am not familiar with the jig. Uh, it's some little classic dance kind of thing. It's like a dance song game, is, is, <laughs> is the way it's described, mm -hmm. uh, that might poke a little fun at the story, probably meant to deflate something super heavy that you've just experienced, right? To kind of like take the air out of it a little bit and like, you know, a little bit of a palate cleanser after like, spoiler alert, Romeo and Juliet kill themselves. Or, you know, Titus Andronicus uh, feeds his nemesis's children to her in the form of meat pies. Sorry, I think it's okay to spoil Shakespeare. It's been like hundreds of years. Sure, um, if he wrote it. Kidding. Yeah. Uh, oh, different oh, show. That's different a topic show. for another day. But he takes this format thing that is understood, this, right. this little jig, and he turns it on its head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the idea is, if you've ever seen uh, some improv shows, you've seen this happen in theater. The, we don't know the exact dances the Shakespearean actors were doing, but we do know it was probably a way to connect them with the audience, right? And this is something that he subverts, just as you described. He says, let me take this moment at the end of the show, not to have a funny dance routine where everybody gets up on the stage, you know, and, and starts cutting a rug, but let's, let's use this moment for me to speak directly to the audience, to break the fourth wall. Let's be together on something serious. At first, he just had a guitar that he would sing songs on, but as the years went on, he's about 25 at this point, he starts reciting poetry he had written himself and it's protest poetry it's uh stuff like i risk my all upon thy power life son yes country too to free my brethren fettered slaves from sinking in inglorious graves and this starts to touch people it also you know what it reminds me of Noel? it reminds me of who is it dylan thomas do not go gentle into that good night that um yeah that's a subversion of like what's usually what up to that time was like a poem that was a, a drinking toast that would be about happy stuff. So he's, he's mixing on his head. And I, I just think it's amazing. I can't be objective. I'm a fanboy of this guy. I wish I could have seen him live. He also gave a lot of money to abolitionist charities and causes uh, like the Negro state conventions. Um, and he, this started making its way into the press as well. Not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, whereas it might have been such in the past, to your point, Ben, things were sort of turning a little bit in, in Europe. So one mention that made it into the press was about Aldridge's involvement in helping a family uh, of fugitive slaves who ran from Baltimore to New York and were captured and then split apart 
and scattered across the U.S. And Aldridge read about this case, uh, and he sent a large amount of money to New York society to give them some aid. Yeah, so people were basically reviewing plays that he was in, but they were increasingly focusing on his real-world activism in addition to the characters he played. In a complimentary tone, too, which is surprising and amazing. Yes, yeah, that's huge. And especially when you consider how uh, Europe treated him when he first got there. So this gets the attention of the leaders of something called the New Negro Movement. And the leaders of this movement, the leaders of the equality movements in general, Langston Hughes, James Weldon Johnson, W.E.B. Du Bois, they are all over the moon that a performer of color has made a place for themselves in European culture, in European stage culture. And that's when Dubois inducts him into something called the Talented Tenth. This was a group of exceptional individuals that W.E.B. believed were going to lead the entire Black population, the entire diaspora, uh, to salvation. But let's also say this. Aldridge wasn't like a... um, He wasn't always a serious, somber, no fun guy. He was a consummate showman. He would go town to town. He had a really fancy carriage. Uh, He would do all this PR stuff. And he was not above a little bit of personal embellishment to get butts in the seats of the shows. He started claiming he was a descendant of a, an aristocratic or princely Fula line. And then later he spread this story that he was born in Senegal. Neither of these were necessarily true. He definitely wasn't a radical, though. As a matter of fact, his political bent would have been unusual to a lot of folks today because, yes, he was very much an abolitionist. He wanted slavery gone. He also said he wasn't entirely opposed to colonialism. He was down for the advancement of the colonial enterprise. So that seems kind of contradictory at times, you know? So he somehow managed to, I keep saying I'm surprised because of the way he's being received. Because while he's not radical, what he's doing at the time and and who he is and what he looks like is radical. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in, and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. 
And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Call. Right. Mm. He's not like ideologically radical or like, you know, being a super uh, hardliner, which is important because that is exactly the ability that uh, allows him to kind of allows his message to resonate more. Right. Because he's sort of he's bringing everybody in. He's making people. Oh, well, this this guy's a, a fine actor and he's got a good head on his shoulders. So, you know what? Maybe I should stop being racist. Uh, it's just I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it does seem that his accessibility from the acting world is what kind of led people to maybe pay him a little more attention and not be like freaked out uh, by him, you know, and I'm, so I'm not making excuses for needing that, but it does seem that it was a positive force in spreading that message and allowing him to do some good. So he was so popular in those days in England, uh, playing to sold out houses every night of the week. By the 1850s, his acting chops were the talk of the world. They had spread way beyond the borders of, of England. So he decided that he was going to put together a traveling troupe of actors and head out on a tour of the entire continent of Europe. So he did that thing. And just a couple of months, he was considered the most revered, well-reviewed, beloved actors in the entirety of Europe. And it's so rare for someone to be critically, you know, lauded and also get good receipts, you know what I mean? And like put butts in seats and have people like the masses really love what they're doing. So this is like, he's like a unicorn man. Yeah, yeah, it's rare for someone to reach this level of accolades. And I would say he was probably one of the most lauded actors in the world by default at this point. One German writer even said, you know, Ira Aldridge might be the greatest of all actors ever. And a Polish reviewer left something that was really interesting. A Polish reviewer said, 
Though the majority of spectators did not speak English, they did, however, understand the fillings portrayed on the artist's face, eyes, lips, and the tones of his voice and the entire body. So his acting, they were arguing, was on a level past language or a level past the spoken word, which I think was amazing. Let's go back to New York, back where he was born. New York Times, 1853. They're thinking about this guy, their long lost son. And they quote a review of his portrayal of Othello in Austria from a Viennese paper. And they say that he's an eminent artist, partially because of the simpleness and truthfulness of his performance, but also by the power with which he marks the most violent eruptions of passion. He gets cozied up to by royalty. They love him. He eventually marries a member of the of the aristocracy, Amanda von Brandt. She's a Swedish countess. She was his second wife. Uh, of course, she no, is. <laughs> right. You don't get a name like that without some kind of royalty up in the mix. So, uh, so he keeps going, and he's touring all the time for another ten years. He is, like you said, he's making receipts. He's bringing the bacon home. He buys a couple of properties in London, one, funnily enough, on Hamlet Road. And now, at this point, the Civil War across the Atlantic is over. He's in his late 50s, and he says, I'm going to try to go back to the United States. I know I said I was never going to, but I'm going to try to go back. I want to see what my home country is like now that people have been at least on paper, emancipated. I'm going to do a 100-date tour. And uh, people listened. The buzz started building. Yes, this was gearing up to be like the monsters of rock of, of the era, you know, the theatrical version. You know, this is absolutely going to be a massive, you know, hit blockbuster tour. But unfortunately, it never happened. Why didn't it happen? Well, just a few weeks before uh, they were to take off, Aldridge got ill. He had a lung condition uh, that he developed while he was on tour in Poland. And unfortunately, he passed away in Poland, in Lodz, on August 7th, 1867. That's just the day before my birthday. At the age of 60, and he was buried in the Evangelical Cemetery of the city. I'm not going to lie, Ben. This That makes me sad. We talk a lot about people on this history podcast, and it usually ends with them dying. And I don't always care. That <laughs> sounds harsh. I mean, I care, but like, I don't always feel a kinship or like a little emo twist, you know, when, when I say the part where they die. But I feel this guy, man. He seemed like a lovely man and really like changed the game in so many ways. Uh, he died two years after slavery was abolished through the 13th Amendment. Um, and uh, Atlas Obscura points to a um, his obituary in the journal Opportunity uh, that was published in 1925. And it started with uh, a particular observation, um, an editorial kind of observation. Uh, ben, you want to read this quote? It's so good. So good. Yeah, it says, he is the only actor of color that was ever known and probably the only instance that may ever again occur. Record scratch. Thanks, Max. Thank God yeah. they were wrong about that, man. Yeah, they were wrong. That's what I mean. It's like such a weird, mm -hmm. 
tea leaf reading that at the time probably just felt absolutely prophetic. But thank God that because probably because of the groundwork this guy laid, that, oh, that did not prove to be true. You know? Yeah, it's I mean, it's so dehumanizing as well when you consider how many actors how many fantastic actors have lived and died since and are working today, but there's still, make no mistake about it, a, a ton of discrimination in the world of acting. I remember I remember reading that since the Academy Awards began in 1929, only something like 6.4% of acting nominations have gone to non-white actors at all. Uh, only really before Will Smith won the most recent one, only four black men and one black woman ever won the Best Actor or Actress Award. Yeah, unless, I mean, Ben, you and I both recently saw um, Everything Everywhere all mm -hmm. at once. I think yeah. we both liked it very, very oh, I much. I adored it. Um, but yeah, I, absolutely. I can't wait to see it again in theaters. And anyone out there who hasn't seen it, highly recommend it. It's every bit of what they say it is, uh, and, and then some, I think. It's, it's going to be something different for everybody. But Michelle Yeoh is a great example of, it's, she's obviously not black, she's Asian-American, but a great example of the way Hollywood, even still today, treats Asian-Americans. Either get cast as some sort of like stoic kung fu, you know, lady, uh, or she's like, I think she was in Crazy Rich Asians, which is obviously a great movie people really loved it an important movie that highlighted some of these problems but it's still a pretty widespread problem in hollywood and in acting unless you start going more into these like community theater situations where it's sort of the model of the black theater that we talked about back in uh, in new york that uh, aldridge was a part of so it is still a problem because, yo, you know, she's in this movie uh, giving a very incredibly heartfelt, nuanced performance. This movie is about family. Yeah, it has some amazing psychedelic, you know, time hopping and multiverse shenanigans. But at the end of the day, the best part of it is grounded by her beautiful, heartfelt, just very real performance. So good on the, 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 the Daniels for kind of pointing out this issue and showing what's possible. And hopefully Hollywood will follow suit because the movie seems to be making some money. And that's yeah. usually what talks in Hollywood. I love it. It was, uh, we're talking about this off air. It's, it's pretty much, it reminds me of uh, McSweeney's. If McSweeney's and Wolfen made a feature length film, the creativity is amazing. It's a brainstorming session. It all winds up together. And shout out to Wolfen, by the way, if you want to see more immensely creative stuff. Uh, God, I love those guys. But it's true that Aldrich's career as an actor was beyond extraordinary. It was extra extraordinary. His uh, career eclipsed pretty much every actor. He, he was an amazing actor, not just an amazing, quote, black actor. He went further he was seen by more people in more countries. He won more awards, more decorations than any other actor in his entire century. So why does he slip under the radar so often today? It's partially because he appeared almost exclusively in Europe during his career. So he doesn't appear in a lot of American theatrical histories. He traveled from place to place, so he didn't get a big reputation in any one spot. It was kind of an agglomerate thing. That's why people like Bernth Linfers, who wrote the introduction to Ira Aldridge, the African Rocious, says, quote, he was more a comet than a fixed star, here today, gone tomorrow. And as a consequence, he shines less brightly now. Kind of sad. It is sad. Um, but again, 
we're talking about it. I, but it's true. I didn't know about it until now. It certainly seems like something that should be much more in the public consciousness because clearly a very important dude, uh, even if he doesn't get uh, props like he should. But hopefully we at least gave you folks something to uh, read up a little bit more about because this guy's got a very nuanced life. And um, man, I, I'm sorry. So this is like, do you think there's any recordings of him doing any monologues or anything? You know, I was looking. I didn't find any uh, at this time. It doesn't mean they're Seems not like out there. Just on the cusp of yeah. Yeah, it was like silent film era at best, and they didn't really, you know. But like, there would have been. I don't know when was wax cylinder <laughs> technology a thing. That was probably like the early 1900s. So he would have died just ten years before the invention of the phonograph. So again, right. very, very, very close. But at least, uh, at least we can say we are spreading the story now. It remains important in the modern day. And folks, we know we went a little long on this one, but we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you know any actors, if your loved ones are actors, or if you yourself are an actor, you know it is an unforgiving and difficult profession. So be kind to them. Take them out for a drink or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> and go see their shows. Speaking of shows, thank you so much for tuning into ours. Thank you to Mr. Max Williams, our super producer. Thanks to Casey Pegram, Eve's Jeffcoat. Who else? Oh, oh, Christopher Hasiotis oh, here yeah. in spirit, obviously, who is going to be here corporeally uh, before uh, before too long, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, yes, and I'm I'm almost a bit sad, Noel, that we didn't we didn't have. The Quizster, a.k.a. Jonathan Strickland, on today's show. But I'm not sad enough to wait around to see... To, to tread the podcast board. Yes, to yeah, just so. But I'm not sad enough to wait around until he shows up. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's about uh, it's about that time. Uh, besides, the, the the giant clock is uh, is being repaired, and so it wouldn't it wouldn't even work out. It wouldn't be appropriate at all. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who composes Bang & Bob. Max Williams, younger brother... Uh, curling enthusiast and historian. I believe we have a, a double episode coming up that Max has uh, very graciously contributed research to about the history of this sport. Uh, I'm going to try my best to stay awake um, the, the whole time. Do you notice this thing I'm doing, Matt, where I'm antagonizing you about curling? It's the thing I'm trying out. It's, it's just like I'm playing into our nemesis uh, situation. It's not, I, I don't really believe it. Curling's pretty cool. It really helps me out every time you call me Matt, too. Yep. Max, I know your name. We have another show where there's a Matt. Sorry, uh, I'm a little punchy I, right I now. Mean, I, I mean, how often do you call Matt Max? I'm just saying it. Mad Max. I call him I Mad Max name, sometimes. I, yeah, I thought the name of the film series was Matt Max, just because mm -hmm. I don't read headlines or titles. But no, Matt no, Max we, is, a, is a popular German's uh, children's television program. Or a candy bar. Uh, I would try them. Uh, anyhow, tune in uh, for our upcoming episodes. Will the uh, will the tension continue to build to a breaking point over curling? Only you can tell. It'll be a very special week for all of us, folks. We can't wait to hear from you. You can find us wherever you get your podcast, and uh, we'll join you very soon for some more ridiculous history. Boy, will we ever! See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. 